Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. This should really be a celebratory cricketing special. Should we turn this episode into, we have the author special, should we make this a cricket special? I'd love to know how long you think we'll last with that. <laughs> uh, because last night England won the World Cup final against New Zealand. Did you watch it, Pandora? I watched it by proxy for seven hours. Do you know cricket is the only sport that I can bear to watch? And also... Just for fact fans and any single cricketers listening, I have such a thing for cricketers. I think they are so sexy. Sexy? It's very sexy. Love their whites. Love the pavilion. I'd like to get all hot and heavy in a pavilion by the cucumber sandwiches. <laughs> Pandora literally looked just like her breakfast was repeating on her. Bit uncomfortable. <laughs> I'd like to wish you an apology for uh, Dolly's sexual frustration and our pronunciation <laughs> of eccentric last week, which really got the ghost of some listeners on Twitter. One just sent me a sort of passag screenshot of the Google pronunciation, so like no words, just the like mouth um, with the phonetic way of saying it. Eccentric. Trick. I think we might have done a sibilant S at the beginning of some of them. I think we mixed it up a bit. I think maybe, Dolly, you emphasise the E sometimes, but the strife of it. So thank you for the correction. Sir. I have to say, I've always thought it was eccentric, but I also have heard people say eccentricity. Yes, me too. So you live and learn. Yeah, I'm, or, or, or don't learn. <laughs> Remain confused. <laughs> Speaking of living and learning, a segue that doesn't really work at all, Dolly, tell us about your new book. I will, Panda Bear. <laughs> I'm writing a novel. It's called Ghosts, and it's about a woman whose life is falling apart. But it will be funny, I promise. Um, it's about modern dating and ghosting and parents ageing and getting older. And it's all about the nature of love and memory. And it will be published by Fig Tree, which is an imprint of Penguin, in October 2020. And I would love for you to pre-order either a signed edition from Wardstones or from Amazon. I'll put both links in the show notes. And I promise, unlike last time when I was writing my fucking memoir, I will not give you a blow-by-blow account every week of how the writing process is going. Well, huge congratulations, and I will be pre-ordering that. Thanks, Ange. The other big news of this week is that MPs have voted to legalise both gay marriage and abortion rights in Northern Ireland. This is hugely bolstering. Theresa May had been criticised for dragging her heels over this desperate issue because she relied on the DUP to prop up her majority in the Commons and the DUP consistently votes against both rights. Where it gets a little confusing is that that doesn't actually mean anything legally speaking, though it increases pressure and dialogue, unless Stormont has not been restored by October the 21st. Stormont hasn't sat since early 2017, so two and a half years, because of a deadlock between Sinn Féin and the DUP, which is ludicrous. 
I tweeted that I hoped they'd sit down and pass it. And a few people, a little patronisingly, I might add, said that actually we don't want them to sit down, we want Westminster to overrule and pass it. Westminster does have the authority to overrule, but is understandably reluctant to do this often because it really undermines Northern Ireland's governing body. And that's what I was getting at. The DUP was angry that Parliament was voting on issues it deems devolved matters, saying that the bill had been hijacked. Boris Johnson was also nervous about overruling, for diplomatic reasons. I think it's a matter for the people of Northern Ireland and one of the most important reasons for getting the Stormont government back up and running. The reason why I tweeted that I would rather Stormont passed it is I imagine that there could be a lot of bruised egos, often more of an obstacle in politics than a trade agreement. And so Stormont passing it themselves is preferable just to try and miss out that inevitable kind of politician bitching. If not, and this may well be the case, Westminster overruling could be the only way to get these rights passed which are so desperately needed. Just this weekend I was reading a piece in Cosmopolitan about women in Northern Ireland having abortions and I think it's been incredibly hard for the women of Northern Ireland to see all the outrage over Alabama and the other states rolling back the rights because their situation is actually worse to reiterate I think I have mentioned this before but currently only the doctor in Alabama and those other I think six or seven states can go to prison for performing an abortion but in Northern Ireland it would be both doctor and patient Mm. anyway we'll keep you posted on this but it is very promising because it had yeah. been an issue that Theresa May had just yeah. not ignored but stalled mm. over for a very long time. Mm. In music history news, I was intrigued to read in Rolling Stone that an apology letter to Madonna from Tupac is now for sale via auction. <laughs> Two years ago, Madonna tried to... I'm absolutely obsessed with this story. Two years ago, Madonna tried to stop the sale of the letter, saying that being a celebrity does not mean she should not be allowed to maintain her right to privacy. I completely agree with her. How did the letter get out of the desk drawer? I'm not sure, actually. I'm sure there are details of it, of how it, it came into kind of the public domain. Oh, I mean, that I completely understand why she feels quite... Yeah, totally. But an appeals court overturned that injunction last month and the bidding will start for this letter at $100,000. I read that an expert said they think it will fetch up to $300,000. And do they think a Madonna fan will buy that or a Tupac fan? Oh, God, Or a Madonna and a Tupac fan? Yeah, yeah. It's just, I think it's like a piece of music history, actually, because in the letter, so much is said about culture at the time, racial relations at the time. And Madonna and Tupac had a secret relationship that I think has only kind of come to light in more recent years. In the three-page letter from 1995, the year before he was fatally shot, he apologised to Madonna for not being the kind of friend I know. He wrote that he felt uncomfortable being seen with a white woman because he would be letting down half of the people who made him what he thought he was, whereas dating a black man would help Madonna's career. Part of the reason he wrote the note was because he wanted to tell her how he felt in case anything happened to me. He added that everyone is not as honourable as they seem. Let my five bullets be proof of that. So it's, it is kind of an amazing, as they say, this amazing kind of moment of history trapped in amber and says so much. I just love reading this story and it reminded me just like, do you remember... There were those love letters that were never sent to Martin Amis from Jermaine Greer. Very similar situation. That were found. No, it's in... <laughs> Look, Jermaine Greer and I don't Donna. think those two would have been double dating. Um, but <laughs> those two couples... Martin Amis and Tupac. <laughs> 
but in terms of, I remember reading that story and those letters that were never sent to Martin Amos, that I think they amassed to like 20,000 words that she wrote in some little notebook or something that she never wrote. the length of my book so far. And they, <laughs> they, someone found them in a file, box of documents that Jermaine Greer had donated to a library or a museum or something See, which I is just really understand a... this because I can't find any love letters and I use that word loosely that I sent during my teenage years so how is it that everyone else seems to like lose track of a box file of letters I know. like only celebrities seem to be losing track of information that no one else has actually managed to keep a hold of oh, in ye their of, oh ye of little faith do you think this is a strategic move no I don't but I am interested who is making that money presumably that is going to two packs of state Oh, God, I don't know. Because Madonna was the one that didn't want them sold. So it's, yeah. I mean, it's not Tupac who's selling it, is it? It's got to be his estate. Anyway, anyway, Or it might be a private seller. I don't know. I basically think this is just a reminder to all of us to invest in a shredder. That's exactly what it is. I was quite <laughs> cheered this week to hear about Matt Hancock's plans for Alexa and the NHS to team up so that if you ask Alexa a medical question... Instead of one of the myriad dodgy sources on Google, the NHS website, which incidentally is really good and should be the only resource, alongside calling your doctor or calling 111 that you use, will immediately kick in. Some experts have queried whether the data is encrypted or even stored and held against the patient in some sort of history. And then I can imagine some sort of dystopian nightmare where you ring up your health insurance and they say, well, we know that you've been asking mm. Alexa X, Y, Z. But I have to say, I think it's a really good thing. You ring Alexa, well, you don't ring Alexa, you say, hi, Alexa, I've got a migraine. And Alexa would read off that information from the NHS website. And I just think in a world of, like, health confusion and websites like, I don't know, I'm thinking of a lot of new mothers, actually, and I'm thinking of Mumsnet, which I think, I know is a great resource for a lot of people, but I think also carries a lot of, like, completely wrong information um yeah i mean i've diagnosed myself time and time again through fucking reddit threads well yeah what do you think do you think it's good or do you think it's a dangerous data breach me no likey you no likey no but you know what i'm like this is, i just don't like robots i don't like i don't like talking with robots so you would you would not use your alexa to ask her you would i don't her. like alexas i don't like them full stop i don't i don't I know so I sound very So you're going to carry on Googling what's wrong with me, spelt without a W, dot com. <laughs> <laughs> and think that your ears are falling off because... Instagram, ask me anything. Yeah, stories. that's you, is it? Um, yeah, I did. Look, I'm, maybe I'm just being belligerent. Maybe this is useful. I don't know. Why can't people just... Why can't you just... Why do we, why do we have to speak to a pretend person? Why can't you just... Ring the helpline. Tell you where I think it's quite good. This is my local surgery. Um, and actually all the surgeries in my borough um, are vastly oversubscribed. Yeah, same with And mine. Not, um, not always great. I'm going to mm. put it out there. Mm. And so having that resource, I think, could be really great for people. Yeah, look, of course, the, and, and for people who, you know, for whatever reason might be housebound, but I don't like the idea of, first of all, all that information being stored it does it does no, freak me out it does make me skeevy data. and i also i just don't like conversing with 
with technology like I don't like conversing with an automated voice I mean the most terrifying thing I don't really think about it all that much like I didn't I didn't use um, baby apps when I first had Zadie because I didn't want to input information about her that I knew would be stored so I but that's my only kind of thought around it until recently when Ollie and I were having a conversation about some trainers that he liked and he had his mobile on him but that was it yeah and then the next day he was on the computer and an ad came up for the for those very trainers and the yeah. only so his iPhone was listening. Yeah, totally. Yeah, this I happens did. all the time, and, and I don't. I know, but I sort of didn't really believe anyone until that happened. No, and, and apparently, like, oh my lord, that yeah. is literal. I had dinner with some friends the other day, and we uh, were all talking about you know the robots. I don't, Black I, mirror. What, Black what mirror phrase do I use instead of robots? The people. Our in, AI future. The miniature people in the speakers. I don't know. Anyway, we were talking about that and how it just makes us skeevy. And uh, we were talking about specific things over dinner, specifically with our phones out to see if we would have targeted ads. And we all had targeted ads the next week. Apparently, the thing to do... You switch off. Apparently, you, you, have, you, t- you can turn off your microphone when it comes to certain social media apps, which, which means you won't be targeted. I have to say, I do think that's bizarre. That's not more widely circulated. Oh, I think it is. I think you and I are just grannies. Well, it's not that widely circulated. We read a lot of news. Oh, my God. Do you know what I found out the other day? This is going to freak you the fuck out. I had dinner with my friend Jamie, and he's he's very aware of all the miniature people living in the machines and how that is progressing. Your description of this is, like, so batsy. <laughs> he's, very, he's very techy. And um, he told me about this website that I haven't dared to go on yet that basically is documentation of all mainly AI related, all the technology that is currently being created and what stage it's at. So here's what we can expect to be new in the world of technology in five years, in 10 years, in 25 years, 25 years and beyond with details of where this experimentation and work is happening and what it will look like. And apparently it is absolutely terrifying I'm going to have a look at it I I can't look at it yet there's a huge this is a completely unsubstantiated fact but I feel like there is a vast percentage of jobs that are going to be replaced by robots in years and years that brilliant um, series that I loved uh, one of the characters loses her job as an accountant Mm. because that is completely taken over by robots I don't think the Hilo could be taken over by robots some would argue it could (laughs) I don't think they would have our whip-smart sense of humour and analysis. So I think we're safe for now. Well, here's something that I read that actually made me feel quite quite happy about all the robots, is that the work that cannot be replaced by AI is mainly female work. So this is when... This could be when women... Giving have birth, right, that's their work. <laughs> no, but it's more the work that cannot be replaced by AI generally is more commonly done by women so i think that's really exciting because this could be a real moment in history reversal of the handmaid's tale where where women are the most powerful in the workplace how fucking exciting is that i'm gonna go check out that website more terrifying news comes from a village in somerset which is a story i read on the bbc this morning about a man who's dressing up in a full gimp suit and jumping out at women to frighten them. And I know, obviously I clicked on this when I saw the headline because I thought it would be a kind of comic story. And then I read it, it's utterly terrifying and totally traumatic for um, 
his victims. A woman said she was walking in Claverham, Somerset, when she saw someone charging at her in a full black rubbery suit. The man advanced towards her, grunting and breathing heavily before fleeing the scene. Police said there have been a small number of reports of a man jumping out at people in the area. And obviously this is like a small village as well, so it's even more kind of... Uh, terrifying and creepy Um, officers were called to the scene at half 11 on Thursday and used a helicopter and a sniffer dog in an unsuccessful search for the man yeah can you imagine dark village lane awful absolutely terrifying Serena Williams revealed last week in a letter for US Harper's Bazaar magazine that after she lost to Naomi Osaka in the US Open last year a controversial game For those of you who don't remember, after the umpire, Carlos Ramos penalised her three times in a move that many saw as sexist and unfair, led her to seek therapy. Ramos claimed Williams' coach was sending her hand signals from the stands, which Williams vehemently denied, telling the umpire, I don't cheat to win, I'd rather lose. She received violations for smashing her racket in frustration and for verbal abuse towards the umpire after she called him a thief and was fined $17,000 Various umpires reportedly consider boycotting her matches. I think we covered this on the highlight. We did. She writes that she emailed Osaka to apologise, telling her, I thought I was doing the right thing and sticking up for myself, but that I would love the chance to live that moment over again. Rather wonderfully, this is what Naomi Osaka emailed back, people can misunderstand anger for strength because they can't differentiate between the two. No one has stood up for themselves the way you have and you need to continue trailblazing. And also, I would say, people regularly mistake strength for anger when we're talking about people of colour. Yeah. This incident, Serena Williams wrote, though excruciating to endure, exemplified how thousands of women in every area of the workforce are treated every day. We are not allowed to have emotions. We are not allowed to be passionate. We are told to sit down and be quiet, which frankly is just not something I'm okay with. It's shameful that our society penalises women just for being themselves. I might try and hunt down a copy of the magazine. I'd love to read the Mm. whole thing. And Mm. I love that two female tennis players at the top of their game had that email dialogue at a time where they could have sort of been pitted Mm. against each other. Lastly, in dingier but fantastic news, Tommy Robinson was sentenced to nine months in jail for contempt of court, for which he will serve a paltry ten weeks. The former leader of the English Defence League, an extreme right-wing group, real name Stephen Yaxley Lennon, has been removed from YouTube for breaching their hate speech policy. He's already been removed from Instagram and Facebook, so this completes his removal from the mainstream social media triptych. A video titled Tommy Robinson Message from Prison shows him speaking to the camera before he was sentenced at the Old Bailey in London. So I'm in prison for the crime of journalism, for exposing Muslim paedophile rapists. British journalists don't seem bothered about this at all. They are puppets of the corporate globalist media. For those of you who haven't seen the pictures, he was also wearing a t-shirt to his trial that said convicted of journalism, which is quite frankly an affront to all journalists worldwide. What's in the mailbag this week, doll? We received a charming email from a listener who used to work in an umbrella shop about what makes a genuine eccentric. Thanks for discussing eccentricities and true eccentrics. I worked in an old umbrella shop in central London for two years and can say I saw at least a snapshot of genuine and wannabe eccentrics. I think I know which one that is. I think it's the one off Tottenham Court That's Road. amazing, an old umbrella shop. Yeah, I always look at it and I'm like, oh, that would be good for a Wes Anderson film. It seemed to me genuine eccentricity takes time to establish itself as most of the eccentrics tended to be older, wonderful creations that when spoke to me had an undercurrent of normalcy and an unexpected familiarity 
society. The younger ones were just richer and seemed to have more money and time to choose their rather transparent oddity. The 80-year-old incredible salesman, who has certainly seen it all, does seem to think they're becoming less and less genuine these days. Who knows? Perhaps social media is making it all more ostentatious and self-conscious. Either way, nothing like a beloved broken umbrella or a crooked cane to bring in the unusuals. That's wonderful. I know. I also love the fact I went, oh, I look at that shop and I think it should be in a Wes Anderson film. Definitely defines me as a try-hard wannabe eccentric. (laughs) I mean, there can't be many umbrella shops still existing in this world. (laughs) What are your cultural recommendations for us this week, Panda? I loved an anthology um, of beautiful short stories set in Belfast by Wendy Erskine called Sweet Home. Very Sally Rooney, so I wasn't surprised to see in the acknowledgements that she thanks Sally, who is her editor at the Stinging Fly literary magazine, where she has contributed. I really want to get my hands on the Stinging Fly. It sounds great. Have you ever read... No, I've never heard of it. So Sally's been the editor of it since November 2017. Christ, she's prolific. And it's funny, I think literary magazines have been like really quite niche up until more recently, like... The Paris Review, even to an extent like the, the New LRB. Yorker, heard about yeah LRB. I heard about one called Tortoise this week, which I want to check out. Anyway, the these stories have that sort of moving flatness that I think I'm seeing in quite a lot of young Irish writers. In that there isn't like a lyricism to the language. You know, it's not remotely kind of flowery. They're not. You can tell they're they're not trying to kind of create these really long sort of um poetic passages it's almost an opposite but in the absence of that there's this pulsating rhythm and this kind of tenderness oh very very good description there panda i I actually really struggle to um describe kind of prose writing yes i agree yeah and the thing you're right that is so a type at the moment of modern literary fiction and i find it completely addictive i adore reading it funny enough i couldn't write it no i, I wouldn't be very good at i think i'd be terrible at writing that because i think it's quite hard to write with a kind of flatness that is also somehow got depth mm. but mm. yeah it's definitely i think david cesali does it as well actually and um God, loads of the books we recommend actually yeah. do it that one that i recommended last week the new me um and yeah there's a tenderness in the way that things are revealed in these stories and the stories themselves which only on a few occasions have a peak or a finale but offer uh, other times offer just an insight into people's lives which are lives of loss and love but more loss of despair and hope and what can feel like a curious absence of yearning these are not characters looking to better or escape their lives they're not stories of Aspiration. They're stories of how to survive the life you've yeah. ended up with. Yeah. Um, lives which are often, often unfair or unexpected. And they're also a bit surreal. One story is about a woman locking her mother, newly returned from jail, out of her house. Another is about a man grieving the loss of his daughter um, who becomes attached to the son of his cleaner whilst his wife, contained and brisk, longs for a breakdown that refuses to come. I think Sweet Home came out recently and it's had some like great reviews, you know, Mm. from the Irish Times and The Guardian, but um, it doesn't seem to have kind of hit the mainstream yet. And I think they, I think she absolutely should as a writer. Um, I'm going to try and delve out more of her work now. Speaking of short stories, I adored one in The New Yorker called The Lingering of Loss by Jill Lepore. I actually read it in the magazine, but it's so great you can read it online. Mm. They put all of the 
unlike lots of magazines have like a delay before mm-hmm. they put stuff online mm-hmm. um, if they do have a delay it's very short and I think you can read a number of stories online maybe a couple of months um, for free I, I would you know advise subscribing to the New Yorker but it is quite expensive so anyway it's great you can read this one um, it's about it's a story about the grief that this um, woman feels for the loss of her best friend uh, 20 years ago and she tracks that grief alongside the growth of her children all in retrospect when she opens her best friend's laptop after 20 years it's an incredibly clever and moving narrative technique so it starts with when she's in labour with her first child and her best friend is dying 100 miles away and as soon as she pushes her son out mutual friends take a Polaroid and race to her friend's bedside uh, where she dies shortly after seeing the picture Mm. and as this woman discovers more folders on her friend's laptop we learn about more of her life as a working mother and more about the friend Jane and her relationship with Jane there was a paragraph that I thought was really lovely um, that summed up how so much of what she was doing in the life she was living was for her best friend who had had you know all those hopes and dreams kind of cut short how do you do it people sometimes ask me people often ask me people always ask me and why why the books why the babies why the essays why so many why so fast what's the rush where's the fire jane is the how the why the rush and the fire she never got to do any of the things we both wanted only i did I love, love, loved it. Mm. And I think you'd really enjoy it as Mm. well, Doll. It's Mm. really clever. And another piece I really liked is by Jessica Valenti, who's a well-known writer in the States, for a medium publication called GEN. It stands for Global Editors Network. Recommended to me by Otega Awagba, entitled Kids Don't Damage Women's Career, Men Do. She wrote it in September last year, but I'm reading more and more on Medium. I think it's very interesting. It's a platform that's been around for ages, but again was definitely more niche. And I think it's now really coming to the fore because there are just less and less platforms. Sadly, I think that's true. People to write the kind of journalism they want. And by that, I mean like journalism without a constant news hook, you Mm. know, just like most of the recommendations me and you make are kind of beautiful bits of writing that are an insight into the human psyche they're not like hooked over the fact that i know we do a lot of polls on this podcast but normally from a humorous point of view they're not hooked on the fact that like you know five women reveal they don't eat breakfast anymore like so i wonder when journalism is going to let the fuck go of that it drives me mad i think in 10 years we'll just see a completely different landscape i mean even the platforms that we read lots of stuff on now and look i know like news hooky features are really important but i just don't think that 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 should dictate all editorial i think it's strange because the readers never care readers never care and they actually never even necessarily sense the news hook no and also i believe that yes there is a collective uh consciousness there's you know that's the zeitgeist what we're all thinking how statistics show how we're behaving but i really do believe in a collective unconscious which is things that we're feeling uh or things that are happening that we're not even aware of we haven't woken up to yet and it's people putting it into language before statistics surface that help us find the language for a collective feeling or atmosphere something that's happening in the world i just think there needs to be more room for that i know that sounds wishy-washy but there needs to be room for more kind of nebulous thinking in journalism i think in feature journalism 
Do you think your column always has a really strong news hook? There's never a news hook in my column. I'm basically just defending my column. It's just the fucking random witterings of a mad woman. Hooked it very well to Love Island. Please read it every Sunday in the Sunday Times style. This is a very pertinent subject to me, Jessica's piece, as I try and find the nuance in the term emotional labour. It's actually, it's not a term that I necessarily love. Um, a friend of mine recently said, you know, I prefer the second shift. And I think that resonates with my experience um, a lot more, this idea that you do a shift at work and then you do a shift at home. Um, my husband does tons. He is a true co-parent. But this paragraph really did stand out for me as it specifically looks at the minutiae. I promise you, there is nothing fulfilling about remembering that your daughter needs hair ties or that she's about to grow out of that pair of sandals. There's no joy in clipping tiny toenails. If women in relationships with men seem to be more concerned with these tasks, perhaps it's because we know it's not our husbands who will be looked at askance if our kid goes to school sporting inch-long fingernails or ill-fitting shoes. God, that's very true, isn't it? I'm very uncomfortable to... To face. Americans need to stop believing that women do the majority of care work because we want to. It's because we're expected to, because we're judged if we don't. I do hear all the time, uh, women are just better at that, or you just think of that. I was like, well, why do you think of that? So let's stop saying, she writes, that it's motherhood that holds up women's careers. It's not the institution of parenthood that makes advancing at work difficult. It's not our kids. It's that there's no chance for quality at work while there's inequality at home. It's not that women can't have it all. It's that men won't stop taking it. That's a strong ending. And I have to say, I certainly don't feel like my husband takes it all at all. So that's not reflective of my situation. Mm. But um, I think it's a really interesting point because I was really struggling to kind of understand why I was still... I mean, it's something I'm writing about right now. Still failing to kind of unite my roles as working mother so still feeling quite mm. splintered mm. and I do think things like buying birthday presents for tiny people writing thank you letters for the reception of presents for your tiny person choosing and buying tiny shoes when they're needed replacing tiny utensils or the tiny thermometer or buying sun cream for the tiny person or organising the babysitter or paying the babysitter you know that all takes energy mm. um, so I thought that was a really brilliant piece, actually. You can outsource some to me because I'd love to buy some tiny things. Would you like to trim tiny toenails? I'd love to. I'd, I'd, I'd trim Zadie's tiny little You are romanticising that task. <laughs> me romanticising motherhood? No way. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Dolly, for introducing me to the Radio 4 Book Club. I am eternally grateful. Oh, I'm so pleased. I kicked off with uh, one by David Cesali about one of my favourite books, which I read um, on holiday in January of this year, All That Man Is, which I thought was so clever. It was shortlisted for for the man booker in 2016 I want to insert a bit here where he's asked a question by a reader about why his female characters are so pitiable and she says she was disappointed about that as a female reader and I just thought it was great of her to ask mm. and his response was really thoughtful uh, with a lack of defence mm. um, and I thought that was also great. I was a little bit troubled by the portrayal of the women in the book and particularly the middle-aged women they seemed to be rather pitiable sour and unattractive and desperate for sex. They're described as slattens in shapeless, unflattering clothes and poorly dyed hair. And the younger ones seem to be these thinly drawn ciphers, really sex objects. So how would you counter the criticism that the book's misogynistic? First of all, I'm glad that you found the book, spoke to you as well, and I think that many female readers have found that. I don't think it's a book for men. I hope not. Each story is very much the world 
from the perspective of the male protagonist, I guess. I think that's important to take into consideration. And as I was saying before, I was very, very keen not to sentimentalize or idealize the way that men perceive and think about women sometimes. So that sort of ugliness, which you describe, is undoubtedly present in the book in the way that the men sometimes view the female characters in the book. Not always, I don't think. It'd be quite easy to find exceptions in the book to that, but it's definitely there. I didn't want to sort of shy away from that. I mean, I, I think men in private can talk about women and the way they view women in ways which they wouldn't in public, let's say. And I was quite keen to allow that to come into the book. I didn't want it to be in any way sanitised, if you like. And perhaps I, I overdid that in my eagerness not to, to let them off the hook or to idealise or sentimentalise it. I'm glad he acknowledged that. And that is something that I found over and over again in those episodes, is this total lack of ego, really, when writers are reflecting on their works that are so much a part of them. I think it's so important to be able to have a level of kind of retrospective, dispassionate uh, curiosity in how it was read by by their readers. I've only listened to that one with um, David Cesali, but is it quite common that they very. also ask critical questions as well? Yeah, very. Yeah, that's rare, isn't it? Mm. I cannot wait to listen to more um, about more of my fave books, so thank you. What have you been enjoying? I really enjoyed the 100th episode of the Adam Buxton podcast <laughs> with his old so school CJ, pals. It's so good, isn't it? With his old school pals, Joe Cornballs, Cornish and uh, Louis Theroux. He's not called Cornballs, is he? No. That's his nickname. Um, it's probably the silliest episode I've ever heard of the podcast, um, but it's also a great one. It's just very, very clever, very funny, silly boys being silly and off together, which sounds self-indulgent, but it is a total joy to listen to, and you just want to be in their group of silly mates. It also includes a clip from when they were all on holiday together, age 19, <laughs> and very, very stoned, <laughs> uh, doing impressions of David Bowie, and also Adam Buxton's Westminster School Reports being read aloud. I want to read your school reports aloud. I know, I know. I would love to read yours. I was like, I wonder if Let's we could them find out. them. I can. My mum will have them. Oh my God, should we do it? Yeah. Okay. I'll I don't think mine are very interesting. Mine will say, which is like really true, I think, is that, you know, I'm very diligent, but um, I am not always like respectful of authority. Oh, really? Mine, ba- mine basically said if she put half as much effort into her work as she did trying men. to make everyone laugh. Men? My God, I wish. As she tried to make everyone laugh, then maybe she'd scrape a seat. Oh, that's like a very... that That's just like the report of an actor, whereas mine is just the kind of report of someone that was always trying to do well, but was like a bit of a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> what else have you been enjoying? I adored the Back to Black episode of Soul Music. For anyone who doesn't remember, because I've raved about this podcast before, it's a BBC Radio 4 programme in which, uh, in every episode, one song um, is its its subject. And it's about the lyrics of a song, the meaning of a song, um, but most importantly, how the song has played a part in people's lives. And it's often very emotional. They interview lots of different people with lots of different stories. And really, it's kind of an exploration of how music and lyrics and particular songs become very important soundtracks to very important iterations of self and moments in our lives. Um, Back to Black, 
the Amy Winehouse song is obviously a very emotional one. The episode features beautiful and candid conversations with people for whom the song meant a great deal, including an interview with a woman uh, for whom the song was very interlinked with her, the depths of her alcoholism before she sought help and, and went into recovery, uh, which is obviously a very pertinent story to share, particularly in conjunction with the story of Amy Winehouse herself. There's an interview with a woman who visited her terminally ill father in a hospital uh, where Amy Winehouse was being treated for addiction. Donald Brackett, who is the author of Back to Black, Amy Winehouse's only masterpiece, discusses how he believes performing the song uh, may have re-traumatised her, uh, the way it became so popular, and how this album famously really documented the depths of despair for Amy Winehouse. What a head fuck that is when, when that piece of work then becomes this you know, floor filler that people sing along to. There must be lots of musicians who feel like that. Totally, and I think it really is the undoing of a lot of artists. And uh, he speaks very interestingly about how she was forced to kind of relive that emotional pain every time she performed those songs. And our friend, the journalist Daisy Buchanan, speaks about how the song represents a period of her life when she wasn't particularly kind to herself when it came to love. And she talks about the kind of a different type of addiction that Amy Winehouse's music and Amy Winehouse represents, which is the addictive and lethal nature of a certain type of very destructive love. And I don't know if it's just because Daisy's um, a friend of mine, but Daisy breaks down in tears in the interview. And I found myself just walking down the road uh, in floods of tears. And she speaks about something so abstract in such a kind of accessible and recognisable way and most most people I know have been engaged in a relationship that's bad for them but for some reason they can't um, detach themselves from and she just speaks about it in such an articulate way so I loved that episode that's quite an unusual tactic to have normally you would just have like the experts yeah but having people who actually didn't know her but mm. explaining what their music meant to them yeah that's a really nice um, melting pot of yeah um, Meaning, Yeah, it's the most special programme because the, there is so rarely... There's normally kind of one historian or expert, but it's about music of ordinary people and how music shapes ordinary lives. I spent the weekend with my face inches away and utterly absorbed by the pages of Lem Sisse's memoir, My Name Is Why. Lem Sisse, as I'm sure most of our listeners already know, is a much lauded and loved poet, playwright and writer who was the 2012 Olympics resident poet. The book tells the traumatic and quite extraordinary story of his childhood and adolescence. He was born to an Ethiopian mother who fell pregnant when she was in Britain studying as a young woman. She was sent to a government-controlled home for unmarried pregnant women, or as Lem describes it, a farm where babies were harvested from mothers by the farmers who were the authorities and given away uh, to families in England. His mother was forced to give her baby away and was given a totally impossible condition and tiny window for getting her baby back. It was something like, you know, you have 14 days to find a lawyer and present to us why um, you are fit to take your child home and, and raise your child. She wrote to the authorities saying that she wanted her baby back and she would do anything to prove that she was a fit parent and raise him in Ethiopia. But that failed. 
Len was never told anything about his mother or his origins. He was renamed Norman Greenwood as a very young baby and given permanent foster parents who were a very, very religious white family in Lancashire. They raised him as their child. They told him they were his parents forever um, amongst their biological children. And Lem knew this family as his only family. He knew he knew no other people in life other than the Greenwood family. Uh, the family were completely ill-equipped to look after him and particularly to raise a, a black child at a time when racism in England was barbaric. He experienced horrific racial abuse at school and total cluelessness at home. There's this horrific passage where he talks about his mother using a really, really fine, fine tooth comb on his hair which she obviously couldn't um, pull the comb through, which left his head feeling like, he said it was, felt like it was burning with acid. And his mother, who was a nurse, said that he was suffering from hair sore. And for years and years and years, this is what he was told. And it was only in adulthood, those things that you're told as children, when you realise that it's, it was just a lie. It was just completely made just up. Just education. Exactly. Uh, when he was pre-adolescent, he started playing up, like all little boys do, stealing biscuits, having rows with his brother. Um and astonishingly, his parents just sent him away and never contacted him again and said, this is, we are no longer So they family. gave him back? Yeah, gave him back That's to the authorities, true. exactly, like he's a product. And he spent the rest of his adolescence going from care home to care home, feeling an immense rejection and loss with literally no one in the world to answer for him and uh, having to experience abuse uh, in the care homes race- and then in the outside world, racism and defensiveness and fear and aggression from all sides um, because he was a black man. He said he just, he felt, um, he felt his colour everywhere he went in terms of how people responded to him, as I said, with with fear or with aggression. Um, And obviously he started suffering a huge identity crisis in his his adolescence um, and started asking questions about who he was and, and... who his parents were and how he came to have the childhood he had. Finally, with the help of a social worker at age 17, he discovered who his mother is, how he came to have have the untethered upbringing he had. And in very recent years, after decades of pleading with the authorities and being told that his files were lost, he was handed over every file from his birth until he was 17, in which there was just file upon file upon file of documentation of him being observed um, all through his life by social workers and the authorities. The documentation is actually printed into the book uh, in every chapter and he's spoken about as if he's a scientific experiment. It's utterly, utterly chilling and harrowing and heartbreaking uh, to really grasp how much this young man's childhood was basically completely robbed from him. The writing is breathtakingly beautiful and includes stanzas of poetry yeah that you instagrammed a bit and yeah so did matt haig actually mm. so i and i read them both in conjunction mm. and got such a surge of envy for you both reading this mm. um amazing sounding book yeah he's he's an incredibly gifted poet and while the book is heavy with emotion and anger and confusion you feel so much resentment and anger on his behalf as you read it what makes it even more heartbreaking and breathtaking, um, oh, sorry, is his forgiveness and the grace and the understanding that he shows. Sorry, it was such a powerful book. And um, 
I implore you to buy it. Um, it's out next month. And as you can hear, I was really overwhelmed with emotion when I reached its final pages. Um, and then I went to go listen to his Desert Island Discs, <laughs> obviously, as I always do. Is that a new one? No, it's an old one. And I, I read it, I listened to it years ago, but um, I just wanted to listen to it again. And it's very emotional, but it's also very, very funny. And what shines through it is just an extraordinary light from this man who was forcibly dragged into so much darkness that most of us mm. will never know. Um, and I just love this clip where he talks about the power of poetry. And uh, the whole episode, in fact, is just a celebration of a beautiful thinker and a beautiful man who articulates so much, I think, and represents so much about the resilience of the human soul. Poetry can serve a person just by being written and read at a funeral or at a wedding or at the birth of a child. Why do you think people go to poetry at those times? Actually, poetry is around people a lot more than those times. Poetry has a bridge between the spiritual and the physical, and that's why it's in the Bible, that's why it's in the Quran. that's why the Buddhist faith uses it. So when you feel de a desperate need for that bridge at a wedding, at a funeral... When you're leaving work after 25 years, you know, there's always somebody who's right, right, I've got a poem for you, John. All right, OK. And it's a funny poem, but it's kind of poignant. It's a beautiful thing to see a poem read at uh, a funeral or a wedding. And if you go around graveyards, you find poems are the last thing that people leave to them. Why is that? It's because poetry is the bridge between now and then, the past and the future. It's an incredibly powerful thing. And it is around us all the time. Often it's not great poetry, so I, I will go around the graveyard with a little chisel just to, you know, just to edit. <laughs> a little editing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Support for the Hilo comes from Christie. Christie was founded in 1850 by Henry Christie, inventor of the towel that we know today. Since then, Christie have continued to produce high-quality and long-lasting towels, bed linen and home accessories all designed in Manchester. Mine and Pandora's favourite activity, other than eating copious amounts of salt and vinegar crisps, is reading in bed or in the bath. Not together. We've never done that, but there's always time, I suppose. Find me a big enough bath. Christie is here for your bed and bath needs. Christie bed linens boast high thread counts, unique designs, and are made with the finest cotton. They are also known for their towels, especially the supreme high-grow range, which gets fluffier after every wash. I love a fluffy bath sheet. Very hard to find. And if you don't believe us, believe Wimbledon, because Christie are also the official towel supplier for the Wimbledon Championships, producing the iconic towels used by the players on centre court. So join us and Andy Murray in living a Christie life and shop online at christie.co.uk and get 25% off your order at christie.co.uk with the code THEHILO. T's and C's apply. Thanks very much to Christy. We are so, so, so thrilled this week to be introducing one of our favourite authors to the Hilo. 
When we first started doing our author specials, this writer was at the very, very top of our list as our dream guest. His books, Starter for Ten, Us, The Understudy, and One Day, all tread the tonal line between universally moving tenderness and sharp observational comedy, and can be filed away on the shelf as instantly classic modern love stories. He's also a screenwriter. For TV, he has written on Cold Feet and recently won a BAFTA for his adaptation of Edward St. Aubyn's Patrick Melrose novels. He also wrote the film adaptations of Great Expectation, Far From the Madding Crowd, and his own books, One Day and Starter for Ten. In 2010, he won the Galaxy Book of the Year Award, and in 2014, he was named Author of the Year at the National Book Awards for Us, which was also longlisted for the Man Booker Prize. To sound like Sue Lawley for a moment, he is David Nichols. David, welcome to the Hilo. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. David, something can be said about you that can be said about so few authors, I think. J.K. Rowling, Jacqueline Wilson, Zadie Smith, I think as well. And that is that you are a national sweetheart. Oh, really? <laughs> Everyone, whenever yeah. you talk about David Nichols, or we said we're having you on the show, or you read an interview, I think it's almost impossible for there to be any feelings of bad will oh, well, about you. <laughs> You've sold a whopping 8 million books, which is quite extraordinary. And in the words of The Observer this weekend, you are the man who made a nation cry with One Day. You said in a recent interview that I was riveted by that were you to write One Day now, you wouldn't do that twist. And oh, I think Dolly's yeah. mum would like you more if you had it. <laughs> well, when it came out, I was aware... Shortly after it came out, I was aware of there being fan fiction where that twist didn't happen you know people were imagining a happy really? ending where did you yeah. find that uh, uh people were, i just it was sort of in the air i was uh, there, there was all, there were all kinds of things happening people were retracing dexter and emma's journey through edinburgh that was oh happening uh, uh one or two people had you know, tattoos lines from the book that kind of thing these these extraordinary uh reactions which i really hadn't expected but um that particular twist was always part of the book's architecture. You know, in a way, that was what the book was about. It was about this particular day, the day that we live through every year without being aware of it, that has a particular significance. I'm sort of tiptoeing around what the twist actually is. But it, was, it wasn't something... I didn't get to a certain point in the book and think, oh, this is getting a bit dull, I think I'll, I'll do something cruel. It was always the idea behind the book. I suppose now I'd worry that it was melodramatic or a bit manipulative but you can only write the book at that particular time in your life um i had a great passion for that story at that time great motivation to write it now i'm i'm compelled to tell different stories how does it feel the public having this sense of ownership over one day and it it is a kind of ownership from mm. from what you're saying and Dolly and I feel very possessive yeah. over our copies. But do you ever think, kind of, okay, that was ten years, fuck off now, please. <laughs> I don't um, need to hear anymore. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm very proud of the book still, and I'm very fond of it. And um, and it changed my life in a good way. It made it hard to write for a while, made me a bit self-conscious in a, in a way that I hadn't been before. But I love it. And there's been a recent you know, revival as well in yeah. the last, uh, largely thanks to you talking about it, I think, which has been fantastic as well. It's strange, though, the place the book occupies now, because it's sort of, it ends in 2007 and it feels almost a 
suddenly it feels like a historical novel. You know, it doesn't really mention the internet. Mm. There are certain things in it that feel a little bit dated. You're very aware. When I was writing the final chapters, I thought of it as a contemporary novel. And now it, it's strange how we've moved on, things have changed, which isn't to say that I'm not still really, really proud of it and, and fond of it. And it would be very graceless to, to treat it like a kind of terrible millstone. It was a, a brilliant experience. You've described Sweet Sorrow as my most personal book. Would you like to describe the book in your own words for our listeners and tell us a bit more about why these characters or these themes or this setting is kind of so personal to you? Well, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to pin down exactly because it's not a particularly autobiographical book, but often a book that uh, doesn't necessarily draw directly on your own life will still contain obsessions and concerns and uh, regrets and themes that, that preoccupy you. Um, so the story is uh, uh, a kid called Charlie Lewis who's failed his GCSEs and is facing that long summer before you start your life as an adult in September. He's a bit bored and listless and he bumps into this girl called Fran Fisher and they fall in love. But he realises the only way he can see her is to take part in this amateur dramatics production of um, Romeo and Juliet. And he hates the idea. He hates the idea of Shakespeare, of acting, all of these things. He thinks it's ridiculous. It's not his world. It's not his culture. But, uh, but it's the only way to see her. And so he becomes involved in this production. And it's a, it's a coming-of-age love story told over the course of that summer, the summer of 1997. And it's also told in retrospect, you know, it's someone looking back at their life, looking back at this particular incident. Uh, so there's a, I suppose there's a sort of narrative tension in the question of where is he now and who is he with and mm. how did it all turn out? Mm. But it, I wanted to write a, a very classic coming of age first love story that had that sort of late summer feel, that sense of time passing of, of, um, of melancholy and regret, as well as being full of the kind of passion and intensity and comedy of falling in love for the first time. There's that line in it that I think sums up that kind of summer of your life so well, where Charlie says that that summer he feels like he wished it would never end, but also he kind of is in such a rush to get to the next stage. Yes, I mean, he's sort of frightened of the future. He feels as if he's thrown everything away and doesn't really know what he's going to do with his life but is also desperate for change in a way that uh, I think is quite common with 16-year-olds, that you really want something to happen. And for Charlie, the thing, the most obvious thing to happen is um, for him to fall in love. And he sort of pursues the idea with, with all the energy and passion of a 16-year-old. Um, as to the rest of his life, you know, there's a, there's a sort of subplot in the novel, uh, which is to do with the, um, his family falling apart, his parents splitting up, his father... Um, sort of succumbing to depression, to a depression that no one dare call depression. And that provides the other strand of the, the novel. Being in this play, being with Fran is, a, is an escape from the realities of, of a real life that he finds quite frightening. I want to get on to um, his father's depression and the way that you write about that. But just to go back to writing about a teenage romance as a man in his 
early 50s? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you described Charlie as thinking Fran was lovely, but that he thought this about someone five to ten times on any given day. Yeah. And there's a moment where you write about making coil pots at school, and I just remember those shitty coil pots. Yes. So, <laughs> so instantly, and the parents received with a kind of grimace and just put coins in. But, yeah. And I just felt like you brought together so many, there was a lot of, you know, this was about teenagers in the 90s, but there was so much um, commonality. What was it like writing a book about teenagers? Did it all come rushing back or did you do some field research with teenagers in the 90s? Well, you know, it felt quite important not to write about my own 16th year, which was in 1983, partly because I'd already written Start of a Ten, which was, you know, a coming-of-age novel set in the 80s and was full of... and was much more directly autobiographical. Not the university challenge bit, but the whole experience of going to university. And I did want to write another coming-of-age novel, but wanted to keep it separate from the specifics of my own experience so that it wasn't like flicking through my own photo album and also I wanted it to be someone looking back but not necessarily a 52 year old man looking back someone at a different stage in their life so that meant that it had to be a a more recent summer but I didn't want to you know there's something I think of as the the space hopper effect in that when you see something said in the 70s everyone is on a space hopper Mm. with flares and there are chopper bikes everywhere and I didn't (laughs) want to overburden the novel with mid-90s references so they're they're in there but they're quite fleeting I think the thing that makes it feel in the past most tellingly is the absence of technology you know it's Mm. probably 97 is one of the the last times you could tell this kind of story without people having mobile phones and I suppose my other hope is that that feeling of being 16 is universal I'd I'd have been anxious about writing in the voice of a 16 year old Certainly I'd be anxious about writing in the voice of a 16-year-old now, but I feel that the, the kind of the awkwardness, the gaucheness, the intensity, the self-awareness, the, the self-consciousness and self-absorption, all of those things, I hope, are, are universal and, and um, that they'll ring true. But um, I didn't do a lot of research. Now, I listened to a bit of music. I did that a lot with One Day. I, I did it to a lesser degree with this, just to give a, a kind of... Um, it sounds a bit pretentious, but a kind of subconscious sense of time and place. Mm. I think that music quite often is the way into that. I found reading the book a deeply nostalgic experience, and in truth I found that nostalgia quite Mm. heavy to deal with at times. The way you describe the intensity of first love as being so kind of vivid and wild and carefree and um, with such abandon, I felt a real kind of homesickness for as I read it and I don't know I think it just made me sad because it feels like for so many people perhaps me included perhaps you kind of look to recreate that for the rest of your life and it is impossible to fall in love for the first time another time and I was wondering if you felt any not just with that that kind of part of the story but did you feel any kind of longing when you were writing about this flush of youth um I didn't. I mean, I wasn't a particularly happy 16-year-old. I wasn't very good at it. And I didn't have the kind of summer that Charlie has. I spent it in a in a coffee percolator factory, just assembling coffee percolators. There was no equivalent of Fran. There was no romantic communal theatre production. It was quite kind of dogged and dull. And I, I didn't... I don't think of it as a kind of carefree time. Um, but I suppose what... I am a bit nostalgic for... Well, often when you write a novel, you're writing a kind of, I wish it had been like this. You're writing a kind of a a best possible option and combining that 
also with a worst case scenario with things going wrong with trauma and tragedy and uh, and uh, high drama the reality usually is somewhere in between the mm. two um but i'm not nostalgic about being 16 i think um there's a line in the novel where he says you know the greatest lie that older people tell about youth is that it's carefree it doesn't anyone remember uh, and i certainly didn't find it particularly carefree no, no, or romantic i'm more carefree now than i was at yeah 15 16 but, I think, yeah we i had a miserable time as well i think it was i more, was interested you pining for teenagers because you always say I, like was David, the worst that time, you yeah. didn't you know you didn't do your teenage years how you wish you had and um so i'm interested that you're maybe you're nostalgic for someone else's teenage i think it's that what you said is how the teenage experience yeah how it's kind of correcting the wrongs of your past maybe it is that i wish that i'd had that but i think it's more it wasn't his life that i was so envious of i think it was the intensity of his feeling yes and i think what's true about first love is you know by definition it only happens once Mm. and if it happens at that particular age 16 17 it's free it has its concerns but it's free of the kind of domestic concerns of are we going to live together and what's our future together you know it's a kind of distilled rather intense rather kind of gauche glandular passionate version of it that that only ever happens once mm. and is free of um you know the business of dating it's something Thank else you. isn't it yeah. and uh and yes i'm nostalgic for that even though it didn't happen you know as as, as joyously and um passionately as it does in the novel mm. By any means, actually, now I'm thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) You, uh, the way you were talking about that just reminded me of um, the scene where Charlie's losing his virginity and uh, Fran compares it to making pancakes. And (laughs) Charlie says, so I'm a bad pancake. (laughs) Yes, the first pancake that doesn't quite work out. (laughs) You have described sweet sorrow as bittersweet. And that does seem the most apt word because while Charlie is falling in love with Fran, he's also living through an an agonising home life where his mother has left the family home and taken his little sister with him, but insisted that he stay with his father, who's in the grip of depression, drinking too much, sleeping all day and unable to work. He frightened me and when I wasn't frightened I was simply furious, says Charlie. There's a very moving passage where you describe their living situation through the fruit that they buy, pretending that they're going to stop eating takeaways. The pears would remain hard as stones while the peaches turned to pulp. Kiwis would fizz and burst, the pineapples shrivel, an unnameable sticky black liquid pooling in the back of the bowl. My father would empty it into the bin, ashamed once more of how another failed initiative to restore some decency to how we lived, how we moved through the world. Then he'd go out for cigarettes. As a father yourself, how did Mm. you find the process of writing about um, Charlie's contempt for his father and his father's inability to parent his child and his father's depression, which is desperately sad to read about? Um, I mean, it was sort of unexpected, really. When I started writing the book, I thought it was going to be a very pure, concentrated first love story. And then I started to write about the family life and that expanded and actually became quite an important part of the book and the depression element took me by surprise a little bit uh it's not particularly autobiographical um you know i didn't my my parents always stayed together it was we were as a family we all stayed together i think probably if i'm if i'm drawing on anything it's that when i went off to you know unlike charlie i always loved plays and culture and books and 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 when I was about 15 or 16, I kind of left behind the science O-levels I was doing, the very practical, pragmatic, uh, vocational 
uh, exams. I was pursuing and, and started to get into plays and poetry in a very noisy, ostentatious way. <laughs> and, you know, my, my dad, who worked in a, a cake factory and worked shifts and was a mechanic, uh, found this quite difficult. You know, it was a, it, it, this thing that I loved, this culture, this whole business of plays and books and films became a bit of a a wedge between us. And that became more the case when, when I went off to university, the first person in my family to do that. And um, I think uh, while I was at university, my father lost that job and, and was made redundant. And I was so in love with the world that I'd, I'd gone into. I don't really think I, I paid it as much attention as I should. I think I took it for granted that he was a grown-up and, you know, he was a 50-year-old man and he'd find something else and, and the job had always been a source of great stress anyway. And I was, I'm sort of shocked looking back uh, at not my callousness but my kind of lack of consideration. And now as a, I find as I'm getting older, you know, looking back at that time, now I'm the age that my father was at that time, I'm really shocked and regretful about it, really, that I didn't pay more attention. Um, but I think it's in the nature of that time of life to be quite self-absorbed, mm. to, to be at the centre of your own universe, and perhaps, particularly with one's parents, not, not pay them as much attention or treat them with as much compassion as you should, because you're, you know, you're getting away from them, you're moving on, you're starting your own life as an adult. That's one of the things that I thought was so interesting, is most teenagers get to do that, but Charlie's sort of stymied and furious about yeah. this, that his mother says, no, I'm going and you're staying. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, but hold on, aren't you meant to stay together for me and what am I meant to do? And, um, you know, her, her behaviour is quite hard, I think, to metabolise as a, as a reader, because you just... you. You ache for that teenage boy who's yeah. clearly just saying, you know, please, yes. mum, don't leave me. Yes, I mean, it's it's some of the most painful stuff in the book, isn't it? Mm. And, and at the same time, you know, she's she's been sort of caught in this marriage and has had a, another relationship and, is, you know, it's, it's been asked to leave the house, so she doesn't have much choice. But for Charlie at that particular age, it is it is traumatic. And I think he sees in his father, you know, a possible future for himself that he's mm. he's desperate to avoid without quite knowing how to avoid it you know what what traits do we inherit from our parents and uh, uh is his father's you know the, the, one of the uh the um recurring themes in the book is no one calls it depression the word isn't actually used till quite near the end they they call it you know, the blues or feeling down or melancholy and charlie sees those traits in himself and that's another Another thing for him to worry about as a teenager. So, thanks. My, my, I really ate for his mother, actually. And that line where she says, you know, just because we're grown-ups yeah. doesn't mean that, you know... Yeah. The fact that she obviously only gets one life, like all of us, and I think that you articulated that so well, that, that she feels like she should be allowed to have happiness. Yeah. I mean, as you again, as you get older, the authority of your parents fades mm. and you start to see their flaws and their failings and their vulnerabilities and um and that's what happens with 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 Charlie and his mum. She she feels as if she does also have a right to a, you know, a new life, a happier life. Mm. Uh unfortunately, she doesn't know how to help her her um her husband, so she leaves and uh it is it's 
painful and tricky, but um, Charlie hopes that he can avoid it all, that you know, he spends a lot of that summer just trying to dodge his father and not talking to his father, and when they do talk, they just sort of snap and scowl at each other. And part of his journey in the novel is to find a language, you know, to find a way of actually being in the same room with his father and to find some compassion and engagement. So much of the story is set within rehearsals yeah. and within a kind of theatre context. You yourself were an actor. <laughs> it was. Um, and it feels like it's a world that you like to bring into your books, whether it's yeah. Emma Morley's disastrous foray into Amdram, or the plot of The Understudy, or the setting of this book. As someone who regrettably did a drama degree and spent uh-huh. many a summer at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, <laughs> um, I could say that the way that you portray a production and the kind of stock characters, uh, the people that you find within yes. a company, yeah. is so accurate and so, so, so hilarious. Uh, with its kind of earnest pretentiousness and the way that they take these kind of silly games so seriously. One of my favourite bits is when Charlie has to do improv in Shakespearean language and he says, with love my experience hath been both hit and miss. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is it about the life of actors that you're so drawn to in your writing? Um, I loved being an actor, I really did. Uh, What I loved about it though wasn't actually the business of performance, it was really that whole camaraderie, that whole being in a company, the different types, the kind of feuds and the crushes and all of that. It's a very hard thing to write about because a lot of people find that world understandably a bit pretentious and a bit excluding and not for them. And and so that's why it seemed important to write from the point of view of someone who finds it ridiculous, yes. you know, who doesn't really want to be there, who has this reason to be there. But... Um, really thinks it's all a bit silly. At the same time, I didn't want him to retain that cynicism all the way through. I wanted him to sort of be seduced a little bit, not just by this group of people, this very random, eclectic group of people, but by by the language of the plays, by, by, by Shakespeare. Not in a sort of corny or sentimental way, but in a, a, a plausible way, that he starts the summer thinking this isn't for him, and he comes around to the idea. I suppose why I keep coming back to it is partly, well, I have some experience of it. And, and my experience of it is is both very fond. I love the people I, I worked with and I loved um, being part of a company. But also I'm probably still a little bit bitter about it. I mean, I never really, I never really cracked it. I never really made it. I was never really, I was throwing everything at something that I couldn't really do. And um, there's a kind of, pained comedy in that mm. that that you know the, the understudy is is all about that and there's a little bit of that in this as well a kind of love hate relationship with this silly show business world that's so self-dramatizing and self-involved but also can produce brilliant things mm. i mean i i feel that that's why it's important to maintain not just drama but music all these different kinds of performance and art and self-expression in schools because it's not about training people for a vocation it's about self-expression and learning to work with other people and and uh, uh learning to express oneself and, and uh, collaborate and even if i hadn't gone into acting i'd have still been extremely grateful for for all of those things that i that i learned in all those you know ridiculous plays <laughs> Start of a Ten was published in 2003. Yeah. Which means that when you 
first started publishing novels, it was in the nascence of the internet. Yes. And now you're publishing Sweet Sorrow in this fully-fledged, digitised world. You yourself have recently joined Twitter. Uh-huh. And a very graceful presence you are there too. Always <laughs> thank saying you. thank you to anyone. I know, that's who all I do. It's just, it's just one long <laughs> No, you've got amazing manners. <laughs> but I wondered if the publishing experience has become more intense with this sort of surveillance. You recently... Yeah. Uh, described yourself as quite anxious. I used to worry about worrying, which made me laugh out loud as yeah. I worry about worrying. And if I'm not worried, then I worry about why I'm not worrying. Yeah. And I just wondered yes. how you dealt with that kind of trajectory over the last 16 years, I suppose, as the yes. world has changed so much. I mean, it used to be that, you know, your book was published and there'd be a little, you know, if you were lucky, a little flurry of reviews and they'd all be printed on paper and then the paper would be thrown away and they'd be gone. And that, and then you the book would just carry on and you'd see whether it, it, it survived or you know, how it did. It was a surprise after that. But now it's a sort of ongoing process. You know, you're reviewed every day on Amazon and online and um, it can be quite stressful, quite hurtful to, to get a bad review. If you, even if you don't know, if you, know, if you choose not to read it, you will know about it. You know, it's sort of in the air. And that's, that's quite stressful. I suppose I console myself with the idea that actually it's also, that, you know, that it, it, it goes with the business of being published and that actually it's sort of a privileged position and that um, to be reviewed and to have any kind of attention. But um, I do find it pretty fraud, I have to say. I mean, at the moment, I'm pretty exhausted and frazzled and, and, and nervous because... Um, a novel in particular is is even if you're not writing autobiographically you know it's a it's you you're putting yourself on the page you're expressing something f- from quite deep within yourself even if you're not writing a memoir and that is um exposing and nerve-wracking so far with this book it's been great but um you know i know that there'll be ups and downs there always have been I think it just, it's its not the part I love. I do love meeting readers. And actually Twitter, I've been on Twitter for about three months. So far it's been really fine. Have you found you've got less hours in the day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I find that I'm getting, I'm getting up very early. And I should be getting up early to read fiction. But I'm going downstairs to, you know, check the mentions and all of that <laughs> stuff. Which is terrible. And once the book has calmed down, I will, I will stop. But, um... You know, I have all kinds of internet blockers on my phone. I read that the other day. You're so impressive, because that's what Zadie Smith does. Do you think that's the only way to... I think so, though, of course, there are ways around it. You know, on your phone, you just delete the app. Yeah, I have to ask my my kids to put a PIN number in so that I can't delete it, and all this kind of (laughs) madness. It's insane. But it's... uh, I I suppose if I have a defence, it's that writing fiction is really lonely yeah writing scripts less so but writing writing fiction is you're just sitting there you know five six seven eight hours a day by yourself with no one to bounce off and the internet is the kind of you know it's the water cooler to to use that um cliche Mm, you know it's a way of of walking into the the kitchen and having a cup of coffee and a conversation Mm. and um as long as you leave the kitchen every now and then, <laughs> That's the issue, it's it? fine. Yeah. But, but I have to say, it's also been a privilege to be in touch with other writers, you know, because um, I'm, I'm not part of a, I don't feel part of a kind of literary scene, but, but on Twitter, on Facebook, you can have some contact and some um, exchange of experiences and ideas. And it, I, I love that about it too. 
I wanted to ask you a boring technical question just yeah. because you're David Nichols and we are writers, so why okay. would we pass off this opportunity? Do. Um, Sweet Sorrow is told uh, from the first person yes. perspective and One Day was told in the third person perspective, both equally as personal and riveting and compelling. And I was wondering what the difference is like uh, between those two writing modes. Well, I could talk about this for a long time. I mean, I, because I find it so interesting. Yeah. I find writing in the first person easier because mm. my first novel was in the first person because it's a bit, it's analogous to getting into, um, getting into character. And once you've got the voice, so to speak, and you know what the story is, you can kind of improvise. I was very scared of writing in the third person past tense because I'd always thought of that as, you know, the classic form of the 19th century novel. And, and there's no one, to hide behind you know if if um brian jackson in the start of a 10 has to describe something and he does so in a way that's a little bit cliched or corny or pretentious it's okay because it's His it's voice, him yes. it's not me with the third person i don't know do you describe every room do you describe the weather how do you do it in a way that's original and and precise do you have to uh, apply a different level of scrutiny to every single line every single metaphor and also who is this novelist who is this narrator what's their take on the world what's their tone and so I was very scared of writing in the third person and I the understudy my second book is written in the third person but quite unsuccessfully if you went through and you change it to the first person it probably wouldn't make much of a difference and that isn't the case with one day I think by one day I'd sort of worked out how to do it um so you have a different set of tools um and I find it easier but I also know that it's something you can only do so often mm-hmm. um and the next novel I will have to take a deep breath and write in the third person mm-hmm. again and uh I again a bit I'm a bit scared about that why is it only something that you can do so often you feel like readers bore of it or um, as a writer you tire of it I think perhaps it's a, again analogous to acting you have a kind of you have ticks you have a you know a vocabulary you have a a sense of humor and um uh, there's a danger for me anyway i'm only speaking about myself that um if i were to create another persona to narrate a novel that it might the voice i voice might recur that it might not sound as distinctive uh, uh, you know that you'd find yourself um i worry about it a little bit less because us is written in the first person in a very distinctive voice yes. by a character who has a very clear world view and charlie in sweet sorrow because he's looking back um his attitude to the world isn't quite so limited it isn't his his um he's a little more of a neutral narrator i suppose but um yes it's a bit like coming up with another disguise and are people going to see uh, is the reader going to see you through the disguise is the disguise going to convince have you read um fleischman is in trouble by taffer I, yeah. I thought that was really interesting use of the third person yeah it was fascinating um, i thought what it narrator. did with the, the point of view changing and revealing revealing who the narrator was at a certain point in the novel and being very confident about what the narrator knows even though they're not there I thought was really well done and really ingenious. So I think there are there are ways of doing the third person that are that are um, very innovative, 
and uh, I just haven't cracked it yet. A few months ago, I was trying to write something in the third person and yeah. I was finding it really difficult and I hadn't done it before. So that's why I started bloody blithering on about one day yeah. all the time because yeah. I went back and read one day and I reread it as a technical exercise, yes. really. It felt so personal and so immediate when I read it. I had forgotten that it was in the third person. I hadn't even, yeah, yeah I hadn't even remembered that. I mean, I think why I reach, why I'm inclined to reach for the first person is because I have a theory, and there are lots of exceptions to this, but that for comedy in particular, that a first-person point of view brings with a certain amount of irony and, uh, you know, that there's a distance between what the reader can tell is happening and what the character can tell is happening. So if you rewrote Bridget Jones' diary in the third person, it wouldn't be funny. Mm -hmm. It's only funny because Mm -hmm. she has a worldview and the reader can see very ingeniously see through it to an objective reality and so a first person voice can often be a very uh, a very immediate way into into uh, ironic comedy and that's why probably I, I, I'm inclined to reach for it um, because yeah a third person is more magisterial it's more um, you have to have a world view you yes. have to have a tone yes. and um, the next time out when I start writing the next one, I'm going to have to grapple with that. And what you did so elegant in one day, which is what I was really struggling with when I was writing the third person, is the way that you obviously weren't in people's heads, but you would shift the spotlight yes. very subtly and gracefully yeah. from, from page or chapter or paragraph so that it's equally weighted. So even though it's from this observer, you still feel like you're understanding both Dexter and Emma's point of views. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think you need to work out the rules. You know, mm. are you free to go into anyone's point of view or is it you can limit it to two people? Um, is the third person prose voice going to change depending on whose story you're going to tell? I don't know. It's very technical. When I talk about it, I don't know if I necessarily understand it. When I sit down and write, it feels instinctive. And I think the best way to grapple with it as a writer is to is to read with an awareness of, yes. of that kind of um, technique, yeah. what's going on. Yeah. You said recently, could I write a book that isn't a love story? I don't know if I could. What is it about love stories in their myriad forms? You've written about teenage love... 20-something love, 50-something love, mm. that enthralls you? I think it's often the central event in your life. You know, it's mm. the thing that, that, um, that, that changes the direction of your life in the most um, immediate way. It's a source of comedy of embarrassment, um, wit. It's also uh, can be extremely painful. It can be the great tra- central tragedy of our lives. And it feels uh, like a really rich subject. I mean, since saying that, I'm sort of thinking, well, maybe I, I should leave it behind. I was talking to a journalist a little while ago, and they said, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, what I feel I've never really cracked is to write a, a romantic comedy film in the classic style, you know, a great, witty, smart romantic comedy, but make it modern and sharp and contemporary and kind of reinvigorate romantic comedy uh, on screen. And they said, um, aren't you a bit old for that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And I thought, well, I I wonder if I am. I don't know if I... I mean, I'm still trying to work out if there are things which I'm no longer equipped to write because... You've just written a book about teenagers (laughs) very well. I think you're you're But in the modern world, I don't know if I'd write... If I could write about, about, um, you know... 20-somethings dating now. I haven't been on a date for, for you know, 26 years. I feel like... And then I have to 
take myself to one side and tell myself that those things stay the same, that those yes, experiences, do, yeah. the anxieties, the, the pleasures and the pain of it, the kind of joy of it and the frustration and the sadness are, are, are constant and universal. And then I'm not too old to, to write that. Um, but certainly there are things, you know, there are, there are developments that's the way technology has changed our lives, changed our relationships that I haven't really grappled with yet. And at some point I'm going to have to, without feeling too self-conscious, uh, have to, you know, engage a bit more with the modern world and, and how that's changed our lives. When you need a dating app consultant for your next will, script, David, absolutely. you just have to give me a call. I will come straight to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Thank the high low. We were wondering if there's any way you would mind reading a passage of your beautiful book. No, I would, I would be off. very happy to. I would be very happy to. This is from a chapter called Love. But love is boring. Love is familiar and commonplace for anyone not taking part, and first love is just a gangling, glandular incarnation of the same. Shakespeare must have known this. Take a copy of the world's most famous love story and pinch between finger and thumb the pages where the lovers are truly happy. Not the build-up that precedes it, not the strife that follows, but the time when love is mutual and untroubled. It's a few pages, a pamphlet almost, the brief interlude between anticipation and despair. The confidences and intimacies of new lovers, the formation of private jokes, the confessions of doubt and insecurity, the reassurances and vows, there's only so much of that stuff that anyone can bear. And if Shakespeare ever did write the scenes where the lovers talk about their favourite food, or pick the fluff from their belly buttons, or earnestly explain the lyrics of their favourite songs, then he was right to exclude them from the second draft. The beginning and the end, the anticipation and despair, that's where the story lies, but the state of being in love, and in particular of being young and in love, is like listening to someone describe their parachute jump or their bizarre dream. It's the blurred photograph of a life-changing performance taken from too far away. The more intense the experience, the less inclined we are to hear about it, and while we're happy that their life was changed, and it must have been thrilling, can we move on? So... Best to assume that when we were alone and we weren't talking, that we were kissing or fooling around and that this was all amazing, so much so that I couldn't comprehend why grown-ups weren't doing it all the time, something, I suppose, that we will spend the rest of our lives discovering. Assume, too, that when we stopped long enough to talk, these conversations were all more open and insightful, free-flowing and intense, funny and serious and profound than any other conversation that has ever taken place, not just talking, but really talking. Assume that we were funnier than anyone we'd ever met, and that the time when I made Fran laugh so hard that she wet herself through jeans was one of the proudest moments of my life. Assume that nothing was felt in a half-hearted way, whether passion or anxiety, desire or fear. Assume that we made compilations and we liked each other's music fiercely and, if not pretended to, that we listened solemnly and silently to Nick Cave and Scott Walker singing about us, Nico and Nina Simone auditioning for the song that would be our song, the song that made us cry and that other behaviour previously thought to be silly or repulsive, holding hands, aggressive public kissing, the passing of chewing gum from mouth to mouth, lost its queasiness. Assume that we never wanted to be anywhere else or with anyone else, that time apart was time wasted, and that it was impossible to imagine the circumstances when we might not feel this way. There's some of this to come, not much more than a pamphlet, and it can't be helped. The greater part of it will go unmentioned, but also unforgotten. 
And those were the dulcet tones of David Nichols, who has quite the most beautiful voice either of us have ever listened to. Thank you very much for listening to the Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find us and boosts us in the charts. Sweet Sorrow is out now to buy. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com. Tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye.